Hi, everyone. This is Nick Fletcher, and this is the latest episode of Interview with the PD Pod. I am at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. I apologize about the slight delay since our last episode with Laura Blakemore, but it's been a busy couple of months uh, planning for the next annual meeting in Washington, D.C., which I just had the opportunity along with Tony Riccio and David Farrington to see come to completion. And I think it's going to be an excellent program. I would certainly encourage all of you to come. Uh, the opportunity to collaborate with many of the EPOS members will be uh, really unique and something we haven't done uh, since we went over to Barcelona in 2017. So something to look forward to. My guest today is somebody who I first heard speak about a year ago as he was a guest professor put on by my uh, partner, Dr. Joe Flanagan, and limb lengthening, but also was the uh, uh, person who my partner, Dr. Bob Bruce, trained with in a post-fellowship six-month period on limb deformity and limb lengthening. And Bob speaks very fondly of Mark Dahl, who is at the University of Minnesota, where he is a professor in the department. Mark is really a remarkable guy. He's been in practice for 45 years. He's one of the few people who does limb lengthenings in both children and adults. And he's been really a giant in the field. Uh, as you'll hear about in the podcast, this came really through a lot of travel and a lot of work and uh, iterative improvements. He has traveled to Lecco, Italy. He actually studied with Professor Ilazarov and Shetsov at the Restorative Institute in Kurgan, Russia. Um, and he's been around the country here to see people like Birch and Watson and Green. Baumgart and others. Um, so I think this is a really interesting story. I, for somebody of my generation, it's really unique to think about how somebody uh, such as Mark came about at a time when the ease of communication that we have now with email and videos and phones really wasn't present. And so in order to learn this really complex nuanced practice of limb lengthening and limb deformity treatment. He had to travel to other countries and really take a leap of faith in order to uh, to really believe in it and learn about it. So I think this is a really fascinating discussion. He's an incredibly engaging speaker, and I am appreciative of his time. As always, I look forward to seeing many of you at IPOS. My hope is that this will come out before then, so you'll have something to listen to perhaps on the plane. Uh, but please, Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Mark Dahl. Thank you. I'm going to formally welcome you into the podcast now, so I appreciate you uh, you spending the time. But I'd, I'd love to – I always like to start sort of finding out about what people like as kids. Um, it's, it's interesting getting sort of the genesis story that everybody has, and everybody's got a little bit – different story. Where did you grow up and, and what were you like as a kid? Were you really mechanically inclined from the get-go? You know, I grew up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, uh, one of six. I had there were, uh, five boys and a girl. And um, my dad was uh, originally a high school science and phi ed teacher. And my mom was a high school music and English teacher. And my dad was a medic in World War II in Pearl Harbor, as a matter of fact. And so I had that kind of background, and um, but I was the third of the first three were boys, and we were uh, very athletic and competitive. Um, being the smaller of the three, I had to scrap and fight, I think, uh, in a way that you don't have to if you're the eldest. And um, I was good at art and good at science, and I thought I was going to go into art. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I thought that's what I was going to do originally. 
And unfortunately, I was drafted uh, the week after my 18th birthday in 1969 and was threatened with going to Vietnam. So that was pretty upsetting. And I didn't you know, know how to react to that, but I didn't have to go to Vietnam. I was able to go into the Army Reserves and and I was a medic in the Army Reserves. And, and so I was able to go back to college just two years after the interruption started and um, found out kind of quickly that art was fun, but probably wasn't a good way to make a living. And then I started getting really interested in science and really in college. And, and uh, I got a job. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, convinced me to get a job at the hospital instead of for the public park department. <laughs> and uh, so I did. I, I got a job as an orderly in the hospital, and I fell in love with medicine. It was love at first sight. I loved everything about it. And um, then uh, I immediately switched my major from art to um, physics, and I ended up working really hard at a fairly, uh, not a pre-med college at all, a state college, and got into medical school and was very, very uh, fond of the orthopedic surgeons in the hospital and the general surgeons. And it was quite evident to me that I wanted to be a surgeon. But you did ask me earlier if I grew up as a kid as a mechanically inclined person my father was very dexterous in many ways, and he was always building, remodeling, creating something. And my brothers and I were always taking radios apart, making things. And so, yeah, I was very uh, hands-on with everything I, I did my entire life. So uh, I'm sort of curious. So I want to go back to the medic thing because it's, that, that's, that's unique. We've had, I've had a lot of guests on the show. Nobody uh, that I know of who, who mentioned that they were drafted. Um, and I assume that being in the army reserves as a medic was something that was just sort of assigned to you, but was there anything that came out of that that sort of caused you to think that medicine might be a career? Well, no, not really. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I was given a choice in this this initial boot camp thing. Uh, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a scout, a mechanic, or a medic? And I quickly found out a scout was somebody that carried a rifle in the jungle, and I was not interested in that at all. And an auto mechanic didn't appeal to me either, even though I'd done some of that stuff. I, I, I was mechanical in terms of woodworking and and building things and that sort of thing. So uh, the fact that my father was a medic and I thought that it would require perhaps a little bit more intellectual challenge than the others and maybe some more safety. Um, and at the time in 1969, when you're drafted, you basically have 30 days to find a branch of the service that you can get in. And that's what I did. I explored all the options because I didn't want to go into any of those things. I uh, and so I explored all the options, and I determined that the reserves was the the least least interference, least likely that I would have to actually fight anyone <clears throat> and be involved in the deepest sense in that war. So that my role as a medic had nothing to do with my future career because it 
uh, wasn't a reflection of the kind of medicine that I was really interested in. It was enshrouded in this military background that was so unpleasant right then. It's just terrible. Um, wow. Well, it w- you mentioned that the orthopedist really stood out to you when you got to uh, to medical school. And I'm curious about what it was, because I, I think, you know, I just thinking out loud a little bit, but that was 53 years ago. Um, and uh, and actually, my dad was a radi- radiologist. You guys, I think, are the same vintage because he was in medical school right around that time as well. And it's funny because I do a lot of spine surgery, and I remember telling him when I decided that I wanted to, to you know, take care of uh, scoliosis. And he said, "Why?" He said, "I remember doing those cases, and they took twelve <laughs> hours, and we would lose, yeah, you know, right. four blood volumes." And so, and I, I've realized over time, you know, now I can do a spine and three hours and the kids are home in two days and, and it's such a different animal. So what was it back in, you know, 50 plus years ago that really drew you to orthopedics? That's a great question. As I think about the, um, essentially the mentors, there was one orthopedic group in the town I grew up in and went to college in, and there were eight orthopedists and six of the eight were the most ebullient outgoing doctors in the hospital. Every one of them was smiling the moment they walked into the door. Even if they weren't extroverted guys, they were uh, really engaged in their patients, their career, their life. Um, they were having fun. They were absolutely having fun at their work. And the other doctors that I had contact with, you see, I was an orderly in the emergency room, so that my greatest amount of contact was with the orthopedists, but they absolutely had a blast, and they loved their work, period. Um, so the general surgeons were also the same, uh, but in a different way. Um, they were just less, um, I think, ebullient in this particular setting. So for me, in the 1970s, that really influenced me a lot, how much these men enjoyed their their jobs. And my role with them was, you know, fairly minor, but um, I was right there with them when they were putting femoral traction pins in and, and constructing. The, at that time, of course, femur fractures were invariably put in traction and tibia fractures were put in tra- traction. And that's how they were treated. And it wasn't until I actually went into medical school that that the U.S. really adopted uh, the kuncher techniques of marrow nailing uh, to any great extent. And so I was, you know, hands-on with these men uh, doing work with them all the time. So it was really fun. It must be a little bit interesting. I love the story, by the way. It, It must be interesting to think of the nature in which you know, all of these things that, that, that were new and novel to you at the time were being treated with traction and treated with, um, I mean, you mentioned Kuncher nails and, uh, and whatnot. And then now, you know, you've been involved in creating, uh, a, a number of things that we'll talk about later, but that are just, you know, it's, it's like a Tesla and a bike um, they're so far <laughs> apart from one another. It's, it's, pretty it's, wild. it's really, uh, but I, I think, uh, fundamentally, as I said, what, what really intrigued me about orthopedics was the people and the contact they had with their patients and the nature, the urgency of it, 
Uh, and yet the engaging nature and the confidence that these individuals had that they would <clears throat> solve this problem for the patient. And, you know, as I learned more about medicine, I saw the chronicity of disease. And a lot of us, the immediacy of orthopedics appeals to our, our personalities. So we tend to be, I think, collectively kind of similar in our personalities and the things that appeal to us about orthopedics. I just saw it firsthand, you know, in a sidecar early in, early in my young life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you ended up uh, after medical school going to Mayo, correct? That's correct. Um, which obviously probably, you know, not too far from home. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the process mm -hmm. of pursuing a career that ended up in limb deformity? You mentioned mentors before we got on the call, but was it, was it mentorship? Was there something about the, um, the nature of the, of the problem that you were solving that, that really got to you? What, what was it? And, and, and was that something that was fostered at Mayo? Well, as I think about the orthopedist that had sort of the greatest influence on me at Mayo, it was Ham Peterson and Miguel Cabanella, Mike Cabanella. And Ham is, a pedi as you know, a pediatric orthopedist, the uh, Fisial Bar Excision master. You know, I mean, he... He just dove into that in such a depth throughout his career. But he was also a very um, cordial, engaging guy who, I guess, it didn't matter, but he shared my heritage uh, as a Scandinavian. That didn't really matter much, but we both s spoke uh, some Norwegian. And so when I, when I was on his service, I had a little bit of contact that way. And then he kind of befriended me in, in a way that most Mayo Clinic consultants didn't with medical students. See, the medical school was brand new when I went there. Uh, the re residency started in 1905 or something, and the med school started in 72, and I was, I, my class replaced the first class. So um, the medical school was quite novel to the faculty, and I, I was on Mark Keventry's um, service as a medical student and, of course, way on the sidelines. And, in fact, when he did cases, I didn't even scrub on his cases. Any other service I did, but it's just the way he wanted it. But I would see him do osteotomies, and then on the next day in clinic, these crooked-legged people would come in. These farmers from the upper Midwest would come in with severe valgus knees, grinning from ear to ear, <laughs> at what Dr. Coventry had done for them. And and then on a, a different clinic day, I'd see them coming in with these enormous varus knees hobbled in pain. And that was pretty influential. In my residency, I had really unique uh, mentorship. Ray Gastillo, the fracture classification guy, was a, a big shot at the trauma hospital. David Fisher the Ace Fisher Fixiter fellow was there, Dick Kyle, a future academy uh, president. All of these people um, were I worked with for six months a year for, for those five years. And my residency was so strong in trauma and peds. And so that combination led me to get an invitation to join David Fisher in his limb length clinic at Shriners Hospital. 
And then I was also invited to join a guy named Bob Barnett in the foot clinic. And so both of those areas were heavily laden with deformity and geometry and analysis. And the limb length clinic that Fisher had pioneered, um, you know, used it all, used nails, plates, and his fixator, and then the Wagner fixator. And, and Fisher taught me some really interesting lessons. He had a three-month interval at the end of his residency where the, the chairman had re- re- retired. That was John Moe, the spine yeah, surgeon. Wow. And uh, there was an interval chairman for that three months, and Fisher knew it, and Fisher was fluent in German, and he was interested in circular external fixation, but he didn't know anything about Elizarov. Remember, this is the 70s. And he contacted these two guys in Russia, in Moscow, that were party surgeons, Volkov and Okanesian, and he wrote him a letter and said, can I come and visit? And they said, yes. He wrote Heinz Wagner a letter, and can I come and visit? And he said, yes. He wrote the chief at in Sheffield a letter, and he greeted him with open arms. So as I started working with Fisher then, when I went into practice, I had done a year of peds within my residency, more than was required and loved it, but didn't do a peds fellowship. And I wanted more, and I had arranged for a hip fellowship with a fellow named Bombelli in mm-hmm. Italy. He was kind of the Italian Gons. And um, as push came to shove, I went into practice, and while doing this volunteer work at Shriners, I also set up a clinic at Gillette, and it was it was overwhelming, but it was very obvious to me that I didn't know it, do, know enough to be doing this work, and I had to go visit people. And um, so I set up the same type of visits that David Fisher did, only they were each for a month or two months. And the hardship was, of course, leaving my my wife and my young young daughters. But I was able in my uh, practice setting to take a month out every year for 10 years. And basically the group was very generous the way they set up their time off. And the group had a 10 week time off period for everybody. And I took five weeks to travel and and spend time with somebody generally in Europe or in Siberia. And I ended up spending a winter in Siberia alone. Most of the people that went to Siberia went in as a group of six to 10 North Americans. And uh, I ended up being the only one there. And um, in the winter, it was culturally kind of painful and socially very painful, but it was an eye-opening experience. Just in the eye-opening in, in, from a medical standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, the it didn't occur to me at the time how much effort it would take somebody to develop a product and not only develop it, but then make it usable and then test it and then get it past all the regulatory people, no matter where they were, whether it be Siberia or Sri Lanka or the U.S., and get enough people behind you and the concepts and the idea or be so forceful yourself that you could drive these things so that industry would do them for you. 
And David Fisher, interestingly, uh, did the same thing with the Ace Fisher Fixiter. I mean, the Ace Company, their first product, and for many years, their only product was the Ace Fisher External Fixiter. And it was the multiplanar external fixator that he had witnessed in Moscow that the Moscow surgeons never credited Elizarov for the invention. But Fisher immediately looked at that and thought, this is the way to go. Multiplanar is the best way to do it. No more monolateral, no more Hoffman, Vidal. We need to go multiplanar. But the North American surgeons and Western surgeons will never buy, the, buy these tensioned wires. I'm going to have to do half pins. And so witnessing those different things later had an influence on me when I started getting involved in <clears throat> product development and testing and, and analysis and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You, you, uh, you beat me to some of the, the questions I had. It was interesting. I was telling my wife this morning, uh, because I was excited about, about our conversation, A, about the process that it took for you to learn these techniques. I mean, I think about it and I'm, I'm in my mid forties. And so I read textbooks, uh, which I know probably to a lot of people listening is also a little bit foreign, but the pro the concept of traveling to another country, especially Siberia, or I know that you've been, uh, been to Italy and to, to, uh, to spend, you know, a month there at a time is, is, is just amazing. Uh, but I'm sure that the hands-on, component was was critical can you talk uh, well, I, well i have a lot of questions but can you talk a little bit about the process of sort of almost on blind faith traveling to another part of the world to watch somebody perform something which at the time i assumed there wasn't a lot of press about this you were getting your information on the on the viability of this procedure and the benefit of this procedure almost by word of mouth because at least for my for my uh, readings and again i i don't do uh external fixators but a lot of the 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 literature came on sort of slowly through international journals and and wasn't uh as available domestically so you really sort of took a leap of faith to do this and then to go to an area of the world which probably wasn't the most friendly towards uh, towards Americans at the time must have been uh, a pretty big step. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Um, my partner, Steve Coop, and I entered practice at the same type, time, and we were in San Francisco in 84 or 85. And um, that was the first time, to my knowledge, that Elizaroff had ever been to the West. And um, we witnessed him give what was supposed to be a one-hour special lecture that lasted probably a couple hours. And he, on the stage was uh, Stuart Green, Viktor Frankl, uh, Vladimir Shetsov, who was his right-hand man in, in Siberia, and Elizarov. And he looked very ill. Elizarov did. And the other three guys were basically kind of fighting for the microphone the whole time. Eventually during this talk, and Elizarov was sitting down uh, with a pointer that was sort of just flailing around in the ceiling because I think he had pretty bad peripheral vascular disease at the time. He was probably approaching 70, but he looked quite a bit older than that. But nonetheless, Stuart Green had recently met him and traveled to see him in 83 
Viktor Frankl had as well. And Stewart was one of Viktor Frankl's residents at special, uh, not special surgery, at Hospital for Joint Diseases some 10 years earlier. And, and Shetsov was the guy that was the heir apparent. But Coop and I watched, Steve Coop and I watched this, and um, I had joined the limb length clinic and been doing Wagner lengthenings. And if, if the uh, listeners aren't familiar with that, I'll, I'll explain that. But Wagner lengthenings, and I had begun doing De Bastiani lengthenings because I had met one of De Bastiani's uh, registrars, uh, a fellow named Giovanni Travella, and he was fluent in English, and we met, and we got to talking about things, and he gave me a kind of off-the-cuff invitation to come to Verona. So now, having never been out of the country and not being very worldly, uh, but I had been in the military, and that helps you grow up a little bit, and um, I knew what Dave Fisher had done. I did the same thing. I just contacted people and started writing letters and even calling some of these folks and everybody greeted me with open arms. Everybody was generous. Nobody hesitated. And by then I'd also met Chad Price from Orlando who had um, befriended me at a couple of meetings and seen what I was doing in Minnesota. And he said, yeah, you ought to, you ought to get to Verona because Chad was uh, using monolateral fixation alone. And so I decided, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm not going to be bad at it. I'm going to be either good at it or I'm going to quit. And um, I gave myself a 10-year period to study it and to learn more than I could imagine. And I just kept going every year. And I got the uh, um, reluctant um, permission from my wife uh, mother or three little girls <laughs> ten, ten traveling fellowships it was kind, well it was kind of a trade-off to the uh one year in italy with bombelli she she thought that this would be a less bitter pill <laughs> yeah. yeah it wasn't necessarily I mean, but the group practice i joined invited this they were they were just open about it they just thought it's fantastic and it was funny because kathy told me early on she said, why would you go to Siberia, of all places, to learn how to, and by then she'd seen photographs of the device, to, to learn how to put that on because the technology is going to change, Mark. You don't have to go learn that in Siberia. Soon the technology will change. Well, it did change, but in 30 years. And so I'm glad I went, and she's glad I went too. But um, Yeah, amazing. Yeah, can I just ask you a little bit of the – uh, logistics of it, because one of the things that I feel like modern surgeons, yourself included now, um, benefit from is when you uh, are trying to learn a new technique, um, when you are, you know, innovating into something like a, you know, motorized nail or, or whatnot, you can call up your friends and you can call up your colleagues and, and email and pictures. What, what was the, what was it like where, where you went to Siberia, you observed, you didn't actually, I assume, get to do any of these on your own. You brought it back, and there's so much nuance, so much nuance that goes into any of this, especially what you were doing. And 
I assume that, yeah, you can, you can call them, I guess, or maybe you can write them letters, but the, the process of iteratively learning these techniques and, and figuring out all those nuances really, uh, I mean, you must have taken amazing notes or, or something to, 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 to really figure this out in real time. A couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one was that I just took my dictaphone from my private office and a lot of tapes and batteries and I would just step out of the room or the OR or wherever it is and discreetly dictate anything and everything I saw. And then when I got home from any visit, I would have this mound of tapes that, uh, that and I had a, the same secretary for 12 years and that she would transcribe all those tapes into the printed word. And um, then I, I basically had op notes and discussion points and things that I observed that that um, I had questions about. And another thing that was really uh, um, uh, formative for me was that um, I assisted in the surgeries in, um, in Siberia, but I didn't perform any of the surgeries. And I saw the differences in the way the Italians did it, and remember, they had just recently spent six months in Siberia. Two of the three had recently spent six months there, and they were pre-assembling their frames. They never pre—I never saw a pre-assembled frame in Siberia, and every frame, virtually every frame I saw in uh, in Lecco and in Milano was pre-assembled, and um, so that was another thing. And I had learned long before uh, from AO techniques to draw all right. my fractures, to draw all my deformities, to draw all my osteotomies, tracing the x-rays. And as an artist, that made total sense to me to, to kind of feel the geometry and whatever organ it is you feel when you, when you really feel how you're going, not only going to straighten the sagittal and coronal planes of a spine, you're also going to rotate the spine to, to learn to feel that takes repetition and it's not like uh eating peas with a, a butter knife uh it it's it, it's it really takes a lot of repetition and you have to adapt the tools to what you need to accomplish and when i started doing it the tools were completely inadequate um i mean even the let's face it even the synthes plates until they came up with the combi plates and all the other things that they've come up with and the way you can shape a recon plate in both planes, all those amazing things weren't, weren't around. And even when I learned intramedullary nailing, there were no lock nails. The first locking nail that I experienced was a Brooker Wills nail that had these big fins that were deployed by a screw and hinge device through the proximal end of the nail. So, um, there were a lot of things that, um, uh, went with the adage, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and you just have to make something work. So I saw these people doing it before my eyes, and if they stuck to the principles, and that still is true now, if you stick with the original principles that were all taught, sound biological and mechanical principles, you you won't go wrong, you know, with taking care of a patient. And I I'm convinced that a lot of us could work out of a machinist shop if we could just get sterile processing 
and modify tools and get them to work. Uh, and now with all the slick things we have right now, we have no excuse but to do a good job. So I, I, I've been really fortunate. I, I came through at the right time. And all these people that I visited, I mean, it, it's just the list goes on and on and on. All of them were generous to me. None of them held any secrets from me. And the, the LECO group, uh, Catani in particular, Maurizio Catani, was so generous with his time. It, you know, he, he wasn't paid for it. I'm sure he got stipends and that sort of thing. But he was just passionate about his work and was very thoughtful, very well-educated, and very generous. And I wanted to also mention that the three times I went to visit him, essentially, um, the first time it was organized by Smith and Nephew, and I met George Cerny there, who, who also helped helped me make a turn in my life that I wouldn't have otherwise made if I hadn't uh, become his friend. But I would drag a suitcase, a, the, a large suitcase, the size of full-sized x-rays, filled with x-rays from the previous year of patients that I'd seen, and I'd pare it down to just the essential x-rays with my notes attached, and I'd drag it there, and Katani would go through, and Vila would go through every single x-ray with me the time I was there with them, and draw on the x-rays and tell me what to do and not to do, and and how how he would have made a mistake on this, but he learned to do that, and then I'd dictate all those notes and then drag that suitcase back with all that information. And then in the next year, I would encounter much of what he had said uh, so it was lonely doing this you know alone but then there were another uh, venue was that a dozen to three dozen different people had been able to take these trips in groups to go to where Siberia or mostly Italy and in, in Lecco Italy and I quickly was invited by Smith and nephew um, to start attending labs and then giving lectures. And then I met the other people that had also gone on similar trips. And we started checking and balancing what we had all learned. And that group included Stu Green and Dora Paley and uh, George Cerny and Tracy Watson and uh, Stu Gold and, and Kevin Louie and many more. And we've all become you know, low-maintenance friends to this day. So now I can email any of those fellas and the neat thing is is that years ago when Chrissy Opst was a resident with Debbie Bell in South Carolina Chris approached me after one of these meetings I gave a lecture and he asked me if he could talk to me for a minute and show me a case and the next thing was the next weekend he was at another meeting and Chris kept showing up at these meetings just like I did and Chris is like 15 years younger than me or maybe 20 and the rest of the group is maybe now 30 years younger than me but the point was that he approached me that just like I approached those people and he wasn't afraid to approach me he just came and started talking to me and um, so I responded uh, hopefully as generous as they were to me but Chris and I know, know each other really well now and he teaches me stuff. That's really cool to have it swing around. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, you were uh, the first time that that I heard you talk was when you spoke uh, what a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, for Jill Flanagan, and then Chris was our visiting uh, virtual professor like two weeks ago. Um, and and Chris and I had actually taught taught a course together. He's he's a terrific guy. Can you talk about a little bit about um, innovating during that era in limb deformity? You talked about innovation a little bit earlier, and I wanted to to get more on that. Um, but you, you, and you, you, you mentioned as well, the necessity in developing new technique that we didn't have the techniques necessary to, to treat certain conditions, but at the same time, there's this challenge of maintaining safety and uh, making sure that you're doing the best thing for the patient and not just sort of treating them like guinea pigs. Can you talk about that, especially during that era when you were coming around? Yeah, it's really, it, um, with the creative juice going with not focusing on art at that time, but more <laughs> focusing on the technology. I kept coming up with ideas. The, so many of the tools were just lame. And um, so I actually started a business that I registered as called LimTech LLC. And then I hired an engineer and a graphic artist. And I'd come up with a, a tool that wasn't right and I'd redesign it, then I'd have uh, the machinist make me a prototype, and then I'd bring it to a company and ask them if they'd make it for me. And I got turned down. I lost a lot of money every year for five years. And um, my wife wisely suggested I quit trying to be an inventor and just be a surgeon. And then the moment I decided not to be an inventor, I was invited by a major company to design a uh, or modify the designs of their fixator and uh, set up a panel of uh, three surgeons. And we went ahead and did this. It took 10 years and uh, I believe me, I didn't have the patience for it. And it was really, really hard because we'd go someplace and sit down for three or four days with really smart engineers and product development people and run into all these barriers on what we needed to do and how it needed to be accomplished and how you could improve the existing fixation systems. And so there was a lot of a lot of success and failure. It almost seemed like there was more failure than success, but ultimately it was complete and got done and it's uh, being used by many people. I don't even want to mention the name of it because I have no interest in uh, commercializing myself or need to do it but i learned a ton during that period and i also learned that it's very hard we as surgeons we may have good ideas but it's it's very hard to understand the needs of industry and it just seems so obvious that if i'm a surgeon and i say this knife should be built differently because i'm um ambidextrous and I should be able to use it with both hands or what are you know, I'm just making that up but uh, they will have a completely different view of the world and not in a wrong way but it's their way and so to get, convince them of the merits takes a, a, a unique personality and it never worked for me when I was in my 30s or 40s I was completely unsuccessful and it only came later that I became more successful at it. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly why that is. Um, but I think 
the needs were there and the timing was right. And um, uh, I worked hard on the ideas and I, they bought into things. So that's how that worked out. It, it is interesting, though, because uh, and we've run into this in the spine world um, and we've run it, into it. I remember uh, sort of helping discuss uh, the creation of a set for Gans osteotomies, which when I was uh, sort of discussing with a company that it wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. And mm-hmm. some of these things that you were doing probably weren't being weren't going to be utilized that often. The, it was a, the, these were relatively uh, small number of cases, almost you know orphan diseases and whatnot. Um, and you're creating an implant or a you know fixator or a device to be used in in theory a handful of times a year. And I'm curious, over time, have you found that it's been easier to work with industry? Do they do they get that big picture that these are you know, these are these may be small wins overall, but they're big wins for these patients. Or has it become harder because they really only want to hit the go after the things that are you know going to be big winners? Well, that's an interesting question because I've noticed that what happened was about ten years ago. Well, it, it, the the plate length, for example, I had the my machinist build me a prototype over fifteen years ago. No, it was. It might have been. It might have been almost twenty years ago, and um, that was mechanically dri- driven with an external source, and um, and that got turned down every company I showed it to, huh. and um, that one company would say, "Well, there's going to be cantilever bending," and I, I go, "I know there is, but there's a way to overcome that," and and then they would just close the door, so to speak. They were courteous, but. Um, I think that the window is now closing and I believe the window is closing because of all the things that we've all experienced, the supply chain issues. It's not COVID so much, but it's the cost of doing business, the oversight that we have in America, the the requirement to get everything absolutely right so that no one will ever be harmed by any of the implants you know, this terrible debacle that they had with the metal-on-metal hips that got put into 100,000 patients that kind of slid past the FDA. I've had a lot of contact with the FDA, and they're not much of bureaucrats. They're really smart scientists, and they're really do, they really do well to study the, the uh, instruments that they review to, for purposes of safety, and I have a lot of respect for them. So it's, it's more industry. It's not bureaucratic things, uh, FDA or anything like that. And the constraints that industry has that require them to be profitable in certain periods of time. Industry used to routinely make me, at least once or twice a year, would make me a one-time prototype, and then I would do what's, get what's called hum, humanitarian device exemption authorization from the FDA to use it in a patient and special consent from the patient that it was off label. But as I industry would do that for me, different vendors or companies would do that for me. Um, it took tremendous resources on their part. They'd assign two or three engineers to it for weeks, maybe even months before they had a safe product. And then by the time they got it in my hands, I would use it once. 
and they had never made any money on it. And now they need to see the volume. And so when you have these orphan diseases that we as pediatric orthopedists have to deal with, um, things like, uh, okay, this, this motorized nail that you have is not going to work well in osteopenic bone, uh, different types of bone dysplasias, for example. I need more locking hole positions because I need to s- distribute the load better, and they won't do it. They won't, they won't create it for you. So if you feel strongly about it, then you're going to have to drill the holes yourself and um, you know, get the carbide tips to, to do that and to inform the patient that this is going to be off-label and, or to come up with an idea like rafting screws where you, and you do the similar things in the spine where you put mm-hmm. additional screws that the load that the only two screws have will distribute against these other screws. So you have to just keep thinking about problems to come up with better solutions. Um, I just finished reading uh, the uh, Isaacson uh, biography on on Musk and think what you might, but this guy would not give up on an idea ever. He, He will not give up on an idea until it fails. And he insists on these ridiculous timelines and he punishes people i don't do that but that's the kind of attitude you have to have a real successful innovator somebody like rainer baumgart and the Fitbone. he knowing him he would never give up on his idea he would never let somebody say no to him and and have the last word he'll just keep coming back until he he gets what he thinks is the right thing to do you know, most of us will just kind of try hard and give up after a while and move on to the next <laughs> challenge. Yep. Um, I, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, it's it's sort of interesting thinking about uh, somebody with your experience and, and a career that has spanned so many, uh, you know, innovations and changes in care. Can you talk, uh, if you're willing, about some of sort of the failures? Um, I also want to come back to some of the, the wins, but what, some of the failures in sort of limb deformity management that, that stand out uh, during your career. Um, any anecdotes that, that you feel we may, have, we, we may have actually moved forward because of, um, you know, a- anything that really stands out to you there? Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, well, I immediately started thinking about my personal failures and um, I think my personal failures, especially in recent years, are largely um, patient selection failures. Those are the ones that um, maybe come back to haunt us all. Um, if you didn't really vet the patient, and I'm talking more about adult surgery than pediatric surgery, but if you didn't vet the patient well, for the rigors of wearing an external fixator for 12 to 18 months when you were going to do a a bone transport procedure. If it was somebody that was not psychologically or socially capable of handling how difficult and how prolonged this procedure would be. So that's, that's not a technical problem. That's a a decision-making problem that we make as surgeons and any one of us, has a lot of those in our closet, I think, where you 
you thought the patient could handle it or you you thought you could do this many osteotomies on the patient in this time frame yet you did that but then they weren't medically capable of handling it um, from the standpoint of the technology of it um, it's it's not gone fast enough for me <laughs> I, I, th I think we should have abandoned a lot of things a lot sooner and I would never propose that we abandon external fixation but I think the value in doing so many things with internal fixation anywhere in the appendicular skeleton is and, and for me but also in, in the spine or the axial skeleton there's so many things that we should have abandoned sooner and worked harder to develop but i'm afraid that the innovators back then were encountering all the challenges that we all have well maybe not supply chain but you have to speak to the right person to understand your vision and to see a path through whatever people in technology or business have to see their way through. So I think the collaboration between surgeons and, and technology and industry um, could be better. The yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, it's interesting because it probably took – you know, those really decades of experience with an external device before you could start making really good internal devices, right? Well, yeah. And it, the other thing that I, I feel unfortunate for you all or <clears throat> the next generation is, is that those of us that went through that experience of whatever it be, a thousand or 5,000 external fixators and, and, um, the associated angst and agony and difficulty of all that, so much is learned about the biology of bone healing and the mechanics that you just can't learn now with this new technology. You can't see it the same way. You've got a nail that completely fills the marrow space, so you can't see the regenerate very well. Um, and if you haven't been brought through this process of watching the bone grow and adjusting the rate and rhythm to seeing the bone grow you won't know how to use the new technology as well uh, so all of those things now are getting better because we have better communication but i think um chris yopst is has done very much what i did um, most of his travels, fortunately, were in North America, so it made it a little easier for his family and, and himself and his practice, but it, it takes a bit of a sacrifice to do those things, but like anything else, you're rewarded uh, from your sacrifice in the depth of understanding you have. You know, when you, when you watch hundreds of other surgeons operate, when you don't have to do the operation yourself... It's such a cool position to be in because after having, you know, going to see somebody else operate when I'm in my 50s is such a joy because I can see how they supinate their wrist and, and flex their shoulder just a little bit. I can see all kinds of things that I couldn't have seen when I was younger. And so I love 
I love going to see somebody else operate. It's such a treat. Yeah, I agree. You know, we were talking earlier about your former fellow, Bob Bruce, who's my partner and has been a, a guest on the podcast. You know, I try to operate with him on a regular basis. He truly is a technical genius. And uh, I learned yeah. just the just the flow, the retractor placement, the the thought process and, uh, you know, that's occurring intraoperatively. It, it's, it's so valuable. Uh, we are fortunate that I think that we have, you know, more options than, than having to fly to Siberia um, to, to learn these things. Bob, Bob is always a highly disciplined resident, a highly disciplined pediatric orthopedic fellow, and highly disciplined as my limb lengthening fellow for six months. Very highly disciplined, talented surgeon, great with his patients, really sincere about what he's doing and always trying to do the best. And he's the kind of person that um, gives you goosebumps when you look at what he's done with his career and how successful he's been. You feel like, well, that was time well spent. You know, my my time well spent. And yeah, well, I, I can thank you for sure. He he said he had. Uh, it, well, he shared with me what he says are, are, are dollisms. Uh, one is that when things get tough, slow down, and then the other was that. Uh, you don't always have your best day, but you're always trying to do your best work, which uh, both of which he said to me a number of times at, at times of need, I think. Yeah, that's isn't that the lonely thing as a surgeon when yep. you're, you know, you just whatever it is uh, is troubling you. And I didn't make that up. I mean, I I'm sure I didn't. I, I recall one of my mentors, Lyle Johnson, say I was able to talk to him and actually say honest personal things to him which is not something you can always do in this you know mentor mentee relationship at least in the old days i think it's different now and you know i'm very much closer to the two young surgeons i'm really mentoring right now and andy george addison nick nam i think they could say anything they wanted to me um and i don't think they do but i i believe that they can and some someday they'll trust me enough to be able to do that. But um, I, they certainly talk to me more than I was able to ever talk to the other guys, my my mentors. You know, they just um, a lot of them. I I don't know how they were any busier than I was, but they seemed like they were. So I didn't ever want to take their time. I wanted to do anything I could for my mentor to make his day go smoother so that I could just get a little more of them, you know, and, and that really worked for me. And I think that works for all of us in this relationship that we have. We try to all help each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me, let me go back. Uh, Cause I had asked you, I said, I wanted to sort of uh, go the opposite direction. I asked you about some of the, the failures that had come around during the career, uh, your career um, in limb lengthening. What do you, uh, obviously I think one of the biggest innovative wins in limb deformity management has been, a intramedullary nail. Um, but what are some of the other things that you see on the horizon that really excite you? And what are the biggest areas of opportunity within limb deformity? Well, I think the size of the implants is <clears throat> very restrictive. And um, the size of the implants we hear from the technical side and the engineers is limited. But we have nanotechnology. I'm not buying that size. Is <laughs> this is point. I'm just not buying it. 
you know, the, the things that can be done with, with ultra small things, especially in the digital world, uh, come on, uh, with a, a little investment and a little creativity, we can have a lot smaller implants and there can be things that can be done in less invasive ways and that protect our children and the growth plates and the hyaline cartilage. And so a lot of those things need to be done. Uh, a big failure on our part in my generation is to figure out what to do with the soft tissues. You know, in the Wagner era, era we cut all the soft tissues. Yep. We were taught to do Z lengthenings, fractional lengthenings, whatever it took to reduce the tension in the surrounding soft tissues, which was destructive to the limb. And, of course, these congenital limbs are designed um, uh, uh, from a biological standpoint to, to have short bone structures and short myotendinous structures. And what we've failed to do is figure out a way to relieve that tension or stimulate growth in those tissues. That is something that the next generation is going to get a better handle on, and that'll be exciting. But I think the size of the implants need need to be better. They don't need to be so big and bulky. Yeah, and absolutely. Um, let me ask you, um, uh, I want to talk about a couple more things and then be respectful uh, of your time. But uh, I, I'm curious since you've had had sort of the experience to, to work through this on a number of levels, in 2023, what do you think is necessary for somebody to set up a successful limb deformity practice? Uh, what ancillary services um, in sort of modern times are really critical for success for you, for, you, for your patients, for the hospital, um, to make sure that this is a viable, viable service? Well, you know, Chrissy Opes is the lead author of a really comprehensive article. I, I was um, fortunate enough to be able to help him with it a little bit, but um, it, he's the lead author. I'm listed as the second author. And then there's John Birch and uh, Mike Samchikoff and Alex uh, Kakashian. And if you haven't read it, that's the whole answer to your question. And I'll try okay. to... <laughs> briefly summarize it, but um, I believe it's a JAOS publication. Uh, I'll 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 clarify that. But anyway, it came out uh, just two years ago, and uh, he really talks a lot about the things that we've already hit on: is find a mentor or a dozen mentors, um, and you're going to find mentees. And embrace the mentees just like you expect to be embraced as a mentor. And um, But from a practical standpoint, you have to talk to your hospital administration, and they have to buy into your passion for what you're doing. And they have to understand that you need to need further education. You, the lead surgeon, and any other surgeons involved in it need to get more education. So you need to start making trips. And they can be two-day trips. Now, here in the U.S., it's not a big deal. You can uh, leave work and your family for two days with, uh, and come away with a lot more than I might have come away with in two weeks in, in some other place, some other country. But So that's, that's the first thing. So you've got to get some people that uh, buy into your idea and support you in what you want to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean financial support. 
initially, it means support in terms of your personal education and your needs for implants in your in your OR, in your hospital, and perhaps you need uh, designated help. Yeah, that is the same help each day so that you don't have a different tech every day or a different circulator every day. Now it doesn't bother me as much, but when I was doing many Ilizarov procedures a week, I needed the same tech, and I hired my own PA for it, and that person was always there. And the surgical tech was always the same one. So you need support from the institution. And simply done, get a few cases, borrow cases from somebody like me, show these cases to your um, your administrative support and say, this is what I'd like to do. Will you help me? And um, then from there, you have to follow through with your own education, your own thoughtful analysis of the patients. You need a designated nurse, absolutely top on the list, the same nurse in your clinic every week. You can't be having nurses floating through and get an occasional this person, that person, Jody's gone this week. You need the same nurse in your clinic that has contact with your own patients all the time. And um, I found that the therapists are integral, but the patient needs to be taught these exercises. The patient doesn't need to go to therapy every day for three to six hours. The patient and family have to understand that they have to take this responsibility. And you know, you kind of wonder if, if somebody's at home with their child or somebody's looking after this child, how they don't have the energy to do it. It's a tough thing to have a child with a disability, but this is now a simpler process for the family than it was 10, sure. 15 years ago. Yeah. So um, you need resource material to educate your patients, um, and you need the support from the therapist, the orthotist, the prosthetist and um, the OR staff. So with all, and you need partners. I think I've done this um, solo for a long time and it's really lonely. It's really unpleasant and it kind of sucks the life and the personality out of you. So you need to early on get partners that you can work with. Um, and uh, that that's very supportive and you need friends that you can contact regularly for advice. Um, and I now have dozens, uh, not more than dozens, but I have a lot of people texting me or emailing me x-rays and asking for my thoughts on them. And you should feel free to do that to the people that you know and that you work with. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I want to sort of build on that a little bit. Um, you know, for a lot of conditions in your field, there are a variety of viable techniques that are backed up by, you know, small case series, sort of like... <laughs> The management of Perthes disease, if you ever, you know, when you, when you go to national meetings and there's 100 different treatment alternatives, you know that there's right. not a, a great perfect uh, solution for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and PFFT is sort of a perfect example because I trained in Dallas with John uh, and we never did anything like a super hip. It didn't exist uh, in, in my world when I was a fellow. Um, and yet, you know, for uh, for people who come out of uh, of uh, Palm Beach, uh, West Palm, that's, you know, that's sort of the, the, the way to approach it. Um, but, you know, living in Atlanta, I've realized that it's difficult 
I think, to standardize care of some of the more challenging conditions that are relatively rare. Because again, I mean, you know, most of what I do is scoliosis management um, and sort of DDH routine stuff, which is, you know, I guess in the in the greater scope of the world, relatively rare, but pretty common. I mean, we do 500 spine uh, fusions a year. But yeah. for the stuff that you're doing, um, you know, for families who maybe don't have adequate resources, they have to travel to uh, highly specialized centers. They may not have access to that. What are your thoughts on sort of the uh, the generalist uh, being able to perform a certain amount of uh, limb deformity management, and, and and how do you manage that where you've got families who are coming, trying to travel to you from hours and hours away, and you're like, you're going to have to come back on a regular basis to be seen every week or, or whatnot. Um, how do you manage those kind of things? Well, first of all, I fully invite people to see their local expert. If I know of them or if they tell me who it is that's in their area, um, if they're an expert, then i I don't try to persuade them to come to me because this is a horrible hardship for families. Um, we all know that the, the divorce rate and the uh, difficulty of a couple staying together with a child with a disability is extremely high and very, very challenging for these folks. And if you add the financial burden of them flying to some other state and living in a, a shabby apartment and, you know, doing this and doing that when their child is getting ongoing care. So I really try when I see a patient that is living in the Baltimore area to have John Hertzenberg or now Phil McClure take care of them. Um, or if uh, when Jim, Jim Harrison was still in practice, that would be uh, South Central U.S., Arkansas, or with John Birch uh, in Dallas. And but Quite frankly, there are black holes in limb length and deformity reconstruction all over North America, mm -hmm. all over the world. But so when you've got somebody that lives in an area, wherever it might be, that someone hasn't risen up and invested the time and interest in really being good at this area, um, I inform them that this is going to be tough treatment and um, that we're going to have to work on our iPhones, our internet connection, our video, video conferencing. Um, I do FaceTiming with patients. Um, the ones from a distance, they have my phone number. I don't recommend you don't have to do that, but I never get called in the evening. I never get called on weekends. I ask them to text the x-rays the day they get them on a follow-up visit and then I call them back the next day. I make time to do it. And I now have a schedule as such that um, I pick and choose my cases so I, I don't overwhelm my time and I can give them patients care they need. This other thing that's kind of common and shouldn't be common in medicine is that I don't think of other orthopedists as competitors. I think them as colleagues. And um, we need to do that with each other. So if I get a child from, um, let's just say, the west coast of uh, Lake Michigan, and there's no limb lengthening surgeon there, and there's a pediatric orthopedist that wants to do it, I want them to come and watch the case and help with the care afterwards, even though it's not their responsibility, maybe get x-rays, see the patient. I just had a delightful experience with a 
young surgeon uh, from um, Stanford that um, had a patient I'd known for 15 years that wanted to have her tibia lengthened, and this surgeon wanted to gain the experience and seeing the patient each week and did it. And we, he and I FaceTimed, and so did the mom, and it all worked out beautifully, and it helped the patient a ton. Now, they didn't have to travel as much, and I didn't miss anything. So those are things that are possible in the future, um, but it's really hard. Yeah. I, I am very nervous about uh, doing a patient from Montana and not having them here every week. Yep. Yeah, it's really it's really tough, and I I wouldn't. I mean, the only way I do a person from Atlanta, which I have just recently, is one that I've had for that patient for seventeen years since they were an infant, and I did their infant uh, pelvic and hip osteotomy and soft tissue releases. Um, nowadays, some people would call it a super hip, but at the time, I did what was necessary for that particular patient to realign the hip and, and get it in a protected way before we proceeded with the lengthening. And then I had my own fellow, my personally, you know, Bob Bruce, uh, that I was collaborating with. So if trouble developed, yeah. I would take responsibility. And the, the family, unfortunately, has to have the resources for it so that they can fly and that sort of thing. It's tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to just finish up. You and I actually started this, uh, talking about this a little bit before we got on. Um, but uh, I want to talk about sort of the, the final stages of your career and how you're, how you're preparing for the transition. You mentioned that you've uh, figured out ways to dial back. Um, but just in general, what have been your, your uh, approaches in terms of how you professionally and personally uh, start to, to transition and, and you know, uh, transition both your your own practice but also your fund of knowledge to some of your junior partners you mentioned andy earlier um who's great but you've got a lot of knowledge to transfer yeah well uh first of all the transition is tough um uh i've met too many of friends that have flunked retirement uh too many friends that get odd when they retire and and i um i love what i do so much i still think I have a lot of value and my skills are good and getting better all the time. So I'm in the sweet spot of my career. I just can't sustain a 70 or 80 hour work week, but, um, I can outthink and outplan, um, my former self at age 50. So I would say that, um, know yourself, know what your weaknesses are. And my biggest weakness when I approach 70 was that I did too many operations, not number wise. I did too much diversity of surgery. And uh, in order to stay skilled at it, I had to eliminate certain cases. So I started eliminating cases that I would no longer do. For example, I quit doing osteotomies above the hip joint. In other words, I'll do proximal femoral, distal femoral, knee, ankle, foot, all that, but I just won't do the pelvic bone anymore because I have four partners and four that are very skilled that do them all the time, and they can reach a level of finesse and skill that I can't maintain by doing one a month or one every few months. So I eliminate doing certain operations. Um, 
and maybe treating certain conditions. In my case, I went to just pediatrics. I quit doing adult surgery. And I still do adult deformity because there's nobody that's come up in my area of the country that's willing to do it, and these people aren't being treated. So, But I'm not advertise. I don't advertise anyway, but I don't tell anyone that. And so I, I've reduced the volume of patients very significantly, and therefore the number of cases. So if I used to do 600 cases a year, I do 300 now. And um, it, if it gets much below this level, um, I'm probably not maintaining my skill, and I probably will have will feel like I should quit operating. So, so that's important. And then also understanding that there are other things in my life that I need to pay attention to, and uh, that's my personal development. Um, I have a lot of interests. I really enjoy doing art and woodworking, and I'm not going to flunk retirement. i got a solid plan. I know exactly when I'm going to stop, I think. And um, the third thing you mentioned and asked was, what am I going to do about sharing my knowledge? I am an open book. I am there for anybody. Uh, and, in fact, Andy is, in particular, is helping me write a second book. Um, I was the junior author of a book with Stuart Green, now, I'm the senior author of a book um, with Andy Georgiatis and now Nick Nam, and it's going to be a very technical book, um, and it might be outdated, but it's all based on principles. So we hope to have that ready for everybody, and it's going to be a small population of patient, uh, people that want to buy it. But uh, we're still publishing, and we're trying to share as much as we can. Um, but that's that. Yeah, I think it's great. I, I had Vince Mosca on the podcast a little while back, and he, you know, he talks about the, the textbook that he wrote, which truly is sort of, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the true manual for management of foot uh, deformities and foot pathology, and it's sort of his life work or life's work. So I think it's really cool that you and Andy are are doing that. Well, you know, Andy sees value in it. If it wasn't for his enthusiasm for it. I wouldn't be doing it because <clears throat> he's so facile uh, digitally oh, yeah. as well as surgically. Um, but it allows me to do this and communicate these ideas. And um, and Vince Mosca's book is is brilliant, and I'm using it really much as as a model as such to how to approach these problems and the various ways that they can be approached. We're trying to do it with a wide view, but a very focused description. So if we have five ways to do an upper tibial osteotomy for a child with a certain condition, we're going to introduce all five ways. And um, we'll have a little bit of a uh, editor's note that we will add ourselves as to advantages and disadvantages. So hopefully it's going to be as as good as I hope it will be. We're, we've got a Illustrator, we're going to hire two more because it's going to be full of illustrations, and um, we're fortunate to have the backing and the resources uh, to get it done. That's great. That's great. Well, Mark, it is. Uh, you've been incredibly generous of your time. Uh, it's it's getting late into the evening, and I can't tell you how enjoyable this this was. I uh, I mentioned that you are. 
uh, virtual guest pr- professor for uh, for Jill a year and a half ago, and I, I really just enjoyed that so much and, and learned a lot um, and uh, learned a lot tonight. So thank you for everything. Well, Nick, thank you. I think you did a great job, and and keep it up. It's just terrific. The communication is the key, and um, we're all colleagues, um, and so we should share with each other. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an incredible message, and and uh, I, I love that. I love that sort of take home at the end. So, thank you so much. Well, thanks. Thanks. Take care. <laughs>